Some it's just an emblem of formality. It's a symbol that's been used so frequently. Many blaspheme and despise, though it's ancient, it abides. A shrine to death that stands for life to me. There was a cross made for the Son of God at Calvary. Two pieces of rough timber on a hill. Through his hands and through his feet, he took the nails for you and me. Angels watched as he died for the lost. Though we could have walked away, he chose the cross. You see why this old emblem is so dear to me. It stood for suffering, yet it brought us peace. Offered cleansing for our sin, offered cleansing for our sin, an icon that reminds us that we're free. There was a cross made for the Son of God at Calvary, two pieces of rough timber on a hill, through his hands and through his feet. Took the nails for you and me. Angels watched as he died for the lost. Though we could have walked away, he chose the cross. God forbid if I should ever let my memories fade, but forever keep the cross in view, for that's where I was saved. I was saved. There was a cross made for the Son of God at Calvary. Two pieces of rough timber on a hill. Through his hands and through his feet, he took the nails for you and me. Angels watched as he died for the lost. Though we could walked away, he chose the cross. Though we could have walked away, he chose the cross. Now, every time they sing, it confirms more and more that I shouldn't be singing bass anymore. I, I tell you, I'm not happy about that, but it is what it is, you know. <clears throat> Boy, it's nice to be needed, but when you're not, it's kind of a bummer, right? So, I guess I'm on the outs looking in now. <laughs> I'll just have to start my own group or take my mic and go home. <clears throat> Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19. I wonder today, and I, I, this has nothing to do with the message, and maybe it becomes a message, I don't know, but I wonder if you would subtract church out of your life, take Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night out, 
What impact does being a Christian really have on your life? You know, how does it change your daily life? <clears throat> I mean, does it affect when you get up? Does it affect when you go to bed? Does it affect what you watch, what you do, where you go, who you're with, the attitude you have toward life? I mean, what does, what does being a, a so-called Christian really do in your life? How different is your life than others without Christ if you subtract church out of it? You know, I, I just think that's a question we need to consider sometimes, you know. I mean, do we, you know, have the same schedule? Do we uh, have the same priorities um, outside of attending church consistently, regularly? I mean, are we, would our life pretty much be very similar, if not exactly the same as others that do not know Christ? And uh, I guess I just want you to think about that a little bit. Because our Christianity, our Christian life should affect every day of our life, every aspect of our life, I would imagine. It seems to me it should, right? But I, I, I'll be frank with you, and I'm just going to be very honest. I don't think that's the case in Christianity too much today. I, I really think less and less we're seeing the, 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 seeing the impact of Christ in lives throughout the week. Okay, Now, I'm not saying that, that we don't go to church or something. I'm just saying, how does it affect your daily life? How does it affect your relationships, your marriage, your, your family, the direction you're going as a, <clears throat> as a home, uh, the decision-making process? How does being a Christian affect those areas of your life um, any different than the world? And, um, you know, I, I guess, um, you know, those are just some things that I, I think about, and <clears throat> I hope you're thinking about them. Not only thinking about them, but I, I trust that you could respond in a way that would, I mean, when's the last time a biblical truth trumped a, an idea that you had or a thought that you had, something that you, you thought something and then all of a sudden in the word of God you found out that you were way off base, that that's not what lines up with what God would want. You have to change what you believe or, what, or how you feel or act or do because of it. I mean, how, how much does the Bible, how much does God and his word really affect your, your, your walk with God, your daily life, I should say. And uh, those are things I think we need to think about more often than we do, maybe. We kind of get in a rut sometimes. I think we just kind of get going through the motions, <clears throat> and we maybe don't really evaluate our life that much. Um, and I think it's important that we do. Well, anyway, that's just something I was thinking about when I was listening to the songs and uh, the music tonight. Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19, beginning verse 35. <clears throat> Up to this point, Luke 19, before we arrive at verse 35, we're going to see that the Lord sent his disciples out to get a colt, a colt upon which he would ride into Jerusalem. And he lets them know and he reassures them that this colt has been prepared and readied for him. And if anybody would ask the question, you know, or, or say, whoa, 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 who wants this colt? You just let them know who wants it. It'll be fine. Everything will work out. And so we arrive at verse 35, chapter 19 of Luke, and they brought him to Jesus, talking about the donkey. And they cast their garments upon the colt, and they set Jesus thereon. And as he went, they spread their clothes in the way. And when he was come nigh 
Even now at the descent, the descent of, the, of Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Saying, Blessed be the King that cometh in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples. And he answered and said unto them, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Well, that's a powerful statement, isn't it? Well, I tell you what, the Lord here is making his triumphal, triumphal entry, we often refer to it as. And it's amazing that it wouldn't be very long at all that the same ones that were crying all of these praises would ultimately be crying crucified. Isn't that crazy? How quickly we change our position, how quickly we change our mind, how just on a whim we can go from zero to a hundred, the opposite direction. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? It shouldn't be that way, but too often it can be and is. But there's a couple of things here that I notice that Jesus did. And he did them by how he responded to these particular critics of his. And so I want to point out just three simple things that Jesus did by how he responded. And again, this, there's probably nothing here that's so deep and uh, so, you know, uh, innovative. It's just simple, basic, fundamental stuff. And I trust that we'll not be bored with being reminded again of who Jesus is. So let's go ahead and take just a few moments and consider those three things before we have our communion tonight. And um, we'll, we'll move along in our service. Father, thank you for these that have gathered. And it's uh, amazing to think that you walk the face of this earth. That you're, you created everything and that yet you still became all man and all God. It's just hard to fathom. And yet by faith we believe it and we are grateful. Because without you walking this earth, without you taking our place on that cross, not one of us would be able to enjoy heaven, would be able to fellowship with you for eternity. We thank you so much for what you did for us. We thank you for the word of God that you've left for us that outlines and defines your expectations for us, and what is best for each of us. We need you now. May we learn from this example. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Excuse me. Three things that Jesus did by how he responded. Number one, he confirmed his deity. Here he is now, of course, coming in on this cold and Boy, I'll tell you what, the masses are, are lifting up their voices for all the mighty works that they had seen. I mean to tell you, they're rejoicing and praising God. And it comes to the point where finally the Pharisees, we know that they were really the enemies of Christ. <clears throat> they step up and say, Master, rebuke thy disciples. <clears throat> Here are these people praising you. Here are these people lifting you up, elevating you. I mean, rebuke these 
disciples. But Jesus wouldn't do that, would he? He wouldn't rebuke the disciples. He wouldn't tell the masses to stop praising him. He wouldn't tell them to quit uh, crying out with their loud uh, voices. He didn't do that. And in not doing that, he confirmed his deity. See, what he was really saying is, uh, listen, fellas, I can't tell them to stop praising me because I'm really God. That's what he was actually saying. I'll not tell them to stop. This praise is rightly mine to receive and to accept. I deserve it. Earlier, while Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees or the religious leaders of his day, he made a statement that would place his life in in danger, literally his life in danger. Turn to John chapter 8, would you? John chapter 8, beginning in verse 51. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my sayings, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets, uh, and the prophets are dead, whom makest thou thyself? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your father. <clears throat> Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And though I should say, I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. Well, that's a pretty rough statement, isn't it? Excuse me again. But I know him and keep his sayings. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. Then took they up stones to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Now, I don't know, but if you would just read that and you just kind of skim through that passage, so to speak, and all of a sudden you're thinking to yourself, Wow, I mean, they are really bent on killing Jesus, and you got to wonder why. And uh, we understand that they didn't agree with him. He may have had a different position. But he said something that triggered hatred in their heart. And what he said was the statement, I am. I want you to go back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. Exodus chapter 3, verse 11. We spoke of this passage this morning, but we didn't turn to it. But notice what it says in Exodus 3, 11. We're going to read through verse 14. There on the mount... With his shoes off in the presence of God, the question is answered. How in the world or why in the world would these people... I mean, here is, here's we're going to find Moses down there or up on this mount. And here's God responding. Watch what happens here. <clears throat> and Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go into Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now, I don't know about you, but I, I'll be honest with you. I, I kind of wish... that all of us had a little bit more of that kind of humility. Uh, 
you know, the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians how, you know, he uses the simple things to confound the wise and, and the weak things and so forth. I feel like today in the generation in which we live, everybody's a superstar. If you're not a superstar in real life, you're a superstar in the, what, what's that, what, what's the cyber world? Virtual reality, so to speak. That's right. I mean, you, you got a Twitter account blowing up, but you're a nobody, but boy, you got a voice on Twitter. You've done absolutely nothing to change your world, but boy, you think you're changing the world. <laughs> I'm just saying that we are, uh, to, to borrow a phrase from an old movie years ago that probably nobody should ever watch today, uh, we are legends in our own mind. It's a sad thing, isn't it? But I'm telling you, Moses, we kind of look at Moses and say, Moses, God's speaking to you. How dare you? No, Moses, I think, is being very honest and transparent here. He doesn't see himself the way maybe others might, you know, the way that, that, that we would think he would. But Moses really has a, a kind of a self-image problem, I think, a little bit. And you know what? I'm kind of convinced that maybe it's good to have a little bit of a self-image problem. I think we should find our self-image in Christ, who we ought to be image of. <clears throat> And Moses said unto God, Who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, ye shall serve God upon this mountain. And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers has sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, what is his name? And what shall I say to them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me unto you. So the name of God is identified here in the passage as I am. Someone says, Give me God's name. I am. And so now we have Jesus over here in the New Testament. He is now uh, ridden in to, to, to the city. He's being lifted up, adored, praised, and, and, and just being given glory, if you will. And these, these critics, the enemies of Christ, say, Master, rebuke thy disciples. He says, no way, I won't do it. You want to know why? Because he's God. He deserves that praise. He deserves that honor. He wouldn't rebuke the disciples. He was indeed very God. They're looking at him going, hey, that praise belongs to God. Worship belongs to God. Glory belongs to God. And Jesus says, I won't shut them up. I won't ask them to be quiet because I am God. So Jesus confirmed his deity by, in this case, not even responding, but by saying, uh-uh, I won't even... I won't even respond to that request. Not only that, but <clears throat> we see him speaking some other things, sharing some other things by how he responded or didn't in this case. Number two, he confronted his doubters. <clears throat> Not only did he confirm his deity, but he confronted his doubters. He said, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. What he's saying is, you fellas, you know what? You still just don't get it, do you? I am Messiah. 
I am the promised one. I'm the one that has been spoken of all the way back in the Old Testament. I'm the one that Moses spoke of, that David and so many of the prophets spoke about. Look if you would in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. There are so many prophecies about the coming Messiah. And there's no doubt as you read the prophecies that you can't help but recognize the fact that he is indeed deity. So he's confronting his his doubters now. He says, listen, I'm going to tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name, I love these, these, these names here, shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Those are pretty interesting titles, are they not? I mean, the Everlasting Father? I mean, that's crazy. And then you've got some different religious groups running around when you start talking about the, the, the Trinity, that, that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are one. According to 1 John 5, 7, they say things like, well, if Jesus was God, how is it that he called him Father? I don't know, but what I do know is, is that Messiah was going to be called the Everlasting Father. So I don't know. I, when he's crying out to him Father, he's crying out to himself in a sense. I don't get it. I don't understand it all. But what I do know is that the Bible reaffirms and continues to, to continue to, to, to reiterate the fact that the Messiah was none less, no other than God himself, the mighty God, the everlasting father. That's amazing, these titles. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it. Boy, order. Boy, do we need some order in our kingdoms. And what about your kingdom? How ordered is it? You know, your financial kingdom, your family kingdom, your home, your relationships, how ordered are they? I wonder, by the way, I wonder how you determine the order of them. Because see, you know what? Just because you go to church doesn't mean you order them the way God would have them ordered. I'm asking you, do you order your kingdom according to his? That's just a whole other issue, isn't it? That'd make a good message right there. But the fact is, he goes on to say, to order it and to establish it with justice and with, excuse me, with judgment and with justice from henceforth, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of the host of hosts will perform this. Man, I mean, Jesus is, he's stepping on some toes. He is confronting his doubters. He's saying to them, listen, no, I won't tell them to be quiet. And you know what? If I did, or if they did hold their peace, these stones would cry out immediately, lifting up praise to me. Because I am the Messiah. I'm the promised one. I'm the one you read about back in Isaiah chapter 9, and I'm the one that you read about in Isaiah chapter 61. The Bible says the spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to them that are are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. Boy, there's coming a day when he'll fulfill all of that. Right now, he only fulfilled, the, the, there's, well, actually, it's, all of that's good, but the next verses, you'll see that he goes on to, to fulfill some things later on. He does not come to judge right now, but he'll come back to judge later. 
boy right here, he's being spoken of in Isaiah 61 again. And he's just making it clear to these doubters. He's saying, listen, I just want you to know who I really am. I I want you to be very aware that I'm not just a normal man. I'm not just another prophet. I'm not just a good man. I'm not just here to outline or lay out how we should live our lives. Aren't you amazed sometimes how people take Jesus Christ and they believe somehow that his greatest accomplishment or purpose for living was to be an example? I'm glad he didn't stop with being an example. I'll say that he is an example, but I'm going to tell you something. He's also the Savior, and he died on Calvary. He is the sacrificial lamb. Boy, and he came to die in our stead and to take our place. He is Messiah. Boy, I'll tell you what, he's the promised one. And boy, you know, I know he didn't fulfill all the prophecies according to the word of God yet. Then there's still elements there where he will rule and reign on the throne of David. And that's what messed these folks up. They expected a king to come, not somebody in a little manger. They expected somebody to be born in a palace, so to speak. They expected someone that was going to deliver them out of the the oppressive hand of the Romans. They thought somebody would come along and say, listen, Israel's back on top again. We're number one. We're top dog. And you know what? Jesus is ruling and reigning, and those around him are also doing the same. Oh, that'll happen one day in the millennium. But for the time being, he had come to be the sacrifice of fallen man. To pay for the sins of your your sins and mine. Not only that, I see three things I said that Jesus did by how he responded. One, he confirmed his deity. Number two, he confronted his doubters. And finally, he counseled his disciples. Once again, he uses that phrase. When he made the statement, I tell you that if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. He's teaching, the, 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 he's teaching uh, the need to be praised. He's teaching his disciples that you ought to be praising me. He's saying, I'm not going to listen to these, these naysayers. I'm not going to respond to these critics. I'm not going to tell you to be quiet. Matter of fact, I'm telling you now and I'm instructing you now. You ought to be praising me. You ought to be elevating me. You ought to be lifting me up because I am indeed who you think I am. I'm worthy of that praise. See, God's entire creation praises Jesus Christ. You can't look around you and not see the goodness and the greatness of God, our creator. You can't do it. I I mean, everyone's trying to take that away from him. But look in Romans chapter 1, verse 20. The truth is is that God outlined and laid out long before uh, the critics ever showed up. He knew when he created this universe and he created the earth in which we live... He understood that it would point to him, that it would would reveal his true identity, that he indeed exists. Notice Romans 1.20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Okay, now he's, he's putting in, before he says they're clearly seen. He's saying those invisible things of him from the creation of the world. He's not just talking about He's not just talking about the things we see literally, the things that we see with our eyes. He's talking about invisible things. There are things that God did. There are things that God uh, created or, or, or put into motion in place that are still clearly seen from the creation of the world. You look upon this creation and you can see God in them. Things that are not visible with the eyes can be very clearly seen through the creation of those things that are visible. 
or should I say, through the things that were created, you can see what isn't necessarily visible by the things that are visible, is what he's saying. He says, for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, and watch this, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. What he's saying is, is that his eternal power and his Godhead, his reality, his, his, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and how they function and how they work together to create what they did. Every time you see God's creation, you see evidence of a God who created it. And you see God for who he is and what he is. I mean, we think about just uh, so many things. We think God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Once again, three. You see three. Mankind is created three-part or tripartite, if you will. Uh, body, soul, spirit. We see so many aspects of the creation that are in the same, same element. And I don't have time to go into all of that, but boy, as you break down creation, you recognize that he did much of it in threes. And as a result of that, as we look at it, and as we study this world in which we live, we see God's footprint or handprint all over everything. Someone says, I can't see God. Well, look around you. Now, again, I can't imagine, I, I, I really, in my mind, I, whether you believe there's a God or not, in a sense, whether you believe there's a, a, a creation brought the world into existence, I don't know how you could believe that something other than evolution didn't do it. What I mean by that is, even if there wasn't a God, if you didn't believe in God, how could you honestly believe that something came from nothing? There would still have to be an answer. There has to be something, whether it's a great power source, whether there's some kind of I don't know. I don't even know where, where, well, you know, there's black hole and this and that. Where did that come from? I don't get it. I just don't understand how, how that works. I, I, don't, I don't get it. I, I think that God's much easier to believe in than evolution, personally. And, you know, the Bible tells us that if you'll just take a real good look at the creation, you're going to have to come to some conclusions. That there's a creator. And there is. See, there is not a rock on earth that doesn't cry out in testimony of God's greatness. Even the rocks give due praise to God. Uh, li- listen, have you ever heard this phrase? Have you ever heard the phrase, you are, you, you are as dumb as a rock? You ever hear that? You're dumb as a rock. Or maybe you heard this saying before. You have rocks for brains. You have rocks for brains, man. You know, when a man or a woman refuses to praise God, do you realize that they are dumber than a rock? Because even rocks know that they ought to be praising the creator and the creator's God. And somebody says, well, that's pretty mean. No, it isn't. It's just crazy. If a rock knows to praise God, my goodness, why wouldn't we? Where's creation? We're supposed to have brains. Now, don't go around telling people don't believe in God that they're dumber than rocks. I don't think that'd be the way to win them over. But, I mean, in a very real sense, I mean, that's a pretty clear definition of the term, dumber than a rock, you know? So he's saying to his disciples and he's saying to his followers, listen, don't forget who I am. Man, don't forget it. As close as we are, as tight as we have become, don't lose perspective. Can you imagine 
I, I don't know. You know, we say familiarity breeds contempt. And um, I think that, can, I don't know, how loose would you have gotten with your tongue if you were living with Jesus during those years? How, you know, what kind of statements would you make? Can, can you imagine, would you have ever forgotten who he was during the course of that, those three years or three and a half years? Would you have gotten so familiar with him that he's just your buddy? I, I think there's po- possibility of that happening. I think even though he was God in flesh, I think he was very kind. I think he was very considerate of people. I think he was willing to be stepped on, treated, mistreated. I think he, he, he didn't demand that people bow down to him, so to speak. He didn't require that people show him respect. We don't ever see that in the gospel. I mean, there's people that are doing things to him that we're like, oh, wow. We even see him being put on, you know, the beard being plucked, getting smacked around, beat up, disfigured, all of those things. Jesus never fought back, never retorted. I mean, when he was rebuked, he didn't rebuke back. And in that sense, I'm just saying, I can see people taking advantage of Jesus while he was on earth. I don't care. He, he, he wasn't the president. He wasn't uh, some, some uh, great leader. He was Jesus Christ. He was just a man that was going around preaching and teaching that he was Messiah. Ultimately, he didn't say that right off the bat, by the way. But anyway, he was going around trying to help people recognize and understand the fulfillment of these prophecies, the fulfillment of the law. And, and I think people could have got, I think the disciples could have got real familiar with him. I think they could have taken for granted who he was. I think they could have got to the place where they said, you know what, he puts his pants on just like I do. Would that have been a mistake? I think it would be. And I think he's trying to counsel his disciples. And he's trying to remind them once again, listen, I am more than just your master. I'm more than just your teacher or guide. I'm certainly more than just your friend. I am God. Well, I'll tell you what. Does it bother you when people call him the man upstairs? I think it ought to. I know he says he's a friend that sticketh closer than a brother, but man, he's still God. And I don't know. I, I, I don't know. I, I sometimes think that if I'm not careful, I, because of the promises that I have and because of the opportunity I have to come boldly to his throne of grace and the relationship that I can enjoy with him, I, I think sometimes I even need to be careful that I don't take him for granted. That's all. I, 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 again, I'm not trying to say we ought to go around, you know, unwilling to talk to him. I'm saying you ought to talk to him all the time and take, man, take every opportunity make, and make every opportunity you can to in, in, involve yourself and in, enjoy the relationship that you can have with Christ. Boy, we can never forget who he is. And I think he's counseling his disciples here and he's saying, you know what, I'm telling you too. I'm not just talking to those that are my enemies. I'm talking to you who love me, who have walked with me, who have lived with me, who have served with me. If these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Because I am God. And if you even have considered forgetting it, don't. It's important you remember. So we're to praise him as well, I believe. We ought to be praising him too. If, if these praised him and he said, man, that's how it ought to be. If the rocks would praise him, if no others would, I don't want to give a rock the opportunity to praise my Lord when I could. 
Psalm chapter 107, verse 31 says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. You know, that statement is repeated four times in that chapter. Four times in Psalm 107, it says, Oh, that men would praise the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. We ought to be praising him. When's the last time you praised the Lord? I mean, when's the last time you, you just you got on your knees in prayer and you didn't just go asking, you went praising? Boy, it's so easy, isn't it, to, to go with needs to God all the time. And again, I know he wants to hear him. You have not because you ask not. But can I tell you that I, I, just, I think it's important that we take the time to just say, you know what, just being with you is enough. Sometimes just, man, I'll tell you, that solves a, a, a lot of problems in our lives, spending time with him and, 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 you know, praising the Lord, thanking the Lord, exalting the Lord, magnifying the Christ. And then not just in our own personal time with him, but, you know, maybe around other people. When's the last, and, and, you know, and, and again, there, there's nothing wrong with, you know, saying, well, praise God for this or praise God for that. That's good. But when have we actually you know, stopped and said to somebody, man, my God is so good to me. The Lord, Jesus is so wonderful. When's the last time you said, Jesus is God? Oh, man. Want to start a fight? Be careful what you say these days. But then on the other hand, there's some things that are worth saying. Master, they said, rebuke thy disciples. How dare they praise you? How dare they honor you? How dare they elevate you? How dare they worship you? And he says, if these should hold their peace, the stones would immediately cry out. Romans 15, 11 says, and again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and loud him, all ye people. Look at Psalm chapter 150 as we close this down. Psalm chapter 150. What a, what a wonderful chapter we find in the book of Psalm. Psalms chapter 150. If you just keep skimming through your Bible long enough, you'll run into it. It's one of them books you just can't miss. It's not like Jude or something back there. Psalm 150. Praise ye the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in the firmament of His power. Praise Him for His mighty acts. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with the sound of the trumpet. Praise Him with the psaltery and harp. Praise Him with the timbrel and dance. Praise Him with stringed instruments and organs. Praise Him upon the loud cymbals. Praise Him upon the high-sounding cymbals. Let everything that hath breath praise the Lord. Praise ye the Lord. Wow, that's, that's pretty clear, isn't it? John Wesley was about 21 years of age when he went to Oxford University. He came from a Christian home and he was gifted with a keen mind and good looks. I want to say this, that John Wesley wasn't a Christian for a number of years, however. John Wesley, at one point, was very, very bound with the idea that works were associated with his salvation. Be years later that he finally got that settled. But nonetheless, he was gifted, he was keen of mind, and he was of good looks. But in those days, he, he was a little bit 
snobbish, you might say, maybe somewhat sarcastic. And one night, um, something happened that set in motion a change in Wesley's heart. While he was speaking with the porter, he discovered that the poor fellow had only one coat and that he lived in such impoverished conditions that he didn't even have a bed. Yet he was, he was an unusually happy person. I mean, filled with gratitude to God always. Wesley, being somewhat immature at that point, he thoughtlessly joked about the man's misfortunes. He said, hey, what else do you thank God for? He said it kind of with a touch of sarcasm. And the porter just smiled and in a real spirit of humility and meekness, he said with joy, I thank him that he's given me my life and being, a heart to love him, and above all, a constant desire to serve him. Well, Wesley was deeply moved. He was moved because he recognized that this man knew the meaning of true thankfulness. Many years later, in 1791, John Wesley would lay on his deathbed at the age of 88. Those that gathered around him realized how well he had learned the lesson of praising God in every circumstance. He had come to the conclusion that praising God was so awfully important, and it was evident in his life. And despite his extreme weakness... He began singing the hymn, I'll praise my maker while I've breath. I mean, that was his last song or hymn he sung. I'll praise my maker while I've breath. May God help us to never yield to the rocks, but faithfully and consistently praise our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. May you and I be the first ones to literally offer praise to Him. Praise to our Creator, our God, and our King. There's a great song, and I think Brother Josh sings it sometimes. It goes like this. Do you remember when you were drowning in the sea of sin? Going down for the last time. When you called upon his name, he reached down his nail-scarred hand, and he lifted you up. So remember where you were back then, and thank him for where you are now. Give him the glory. For what he has done in your life, he took you from sin and strife and gave a new life. You get the, you get the gist. Give him the glory. Will you give him the glory? Will I give him the glory? I'm glad they gave him the glory that day, but may I remind you, it didn't last long. That glory... That praise that they offer Jesus turned to crucify him. May we never turn our back on the one who gave his all for us, the Lord Jesus Christ. As we prepare, as we're ready for communion, communion is a very important time in a believer's life. I want to encourage you. I, I'll be honest with you. If you have children here tonight, I would like you to have your children with you. I think it's a parent's responsibility to take care of their kids during this time. I don't think children should take communion unless 
they have a clear testimony and it is obvious that their life is a reflection of, uh, of Christ's likeness, that they're evidently working at it, that they too are in their Bibles consistently, that they're working toward their Christian life. You say, well, my kid's so young, I don't think they understand. Well, and that's why we probably ought to be very careful with telling children they're saved, right? That's why when we talk to children, we try to lead them to Christ. We want to be extremely careful that they are res- they're responding to open-ended questions, not simply yes-no ones. And that's why we do that. That's why in our Sunday schools we try to be very careful with that because when it comes time for this now, either you are or you aren't a child of God. And children of God should be taking communion tonight. And so be very careful with your children. And you know what? Can I tell you this? There was a number of years in my life where I did not take communion. I did not feel that I was in a place to do so. Some of that was a misunderstanding on my part, and some of it was just downright sin in my life. There were things sometimes in my life that I just chose to do when I knew was wrong. I don't think that's a safe time to take communion. On the other hand, if you're waiting to be perfect, and I, I fell into this trap, if you're waiting to be perfect, you'll never take communion. Your heart, though, has to be toward him. What did he say to David in Psalm 66? He said, he said, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. If I regard it. If you're allowing sin to reign in your life without addressing and dealing with it, can I encourage you not to take communion? You say, well, that's not your choice. You're right. It's your decision. I'm just telling you, I would be very careful. Because if you'll read in the passage that we'll read tonight in chapter 11 of the book of Corinthians, you'll find that people lose their lives for taking it unworthily. They sleep, the Bible says. Same term that's used in 1, Corinthians chapter, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 when it talks about being raptured out. Now, Again, I, I'm not trying to make somebody scared to death, but I do want you to understand how, how, how very important this is and how sensitive it can be and, and the need to be honest with yourself and with others. Now, again, who cares what someone else thinks? Listen, maybe you just had a rough night and you didn't get a chance to do your devotions the way you would like to have and you don't feel that you're in the right relationship with the Lord at this very moment. Don't take communion if you don't want to and who cares what someone thinks. You know what? It may not be that there's open sin in someone's life. Maybe they just don't feel the need to take it and that's not for you to judge. It's not for me to judge. To be frank with you, if one of these men comes forward here and he's a, uh, one of the ushers administering uh, the communion, and he does not feel that he should take it for whatever reason, that's his business. I don't go later and say, you know what? You made me look bad. You're one of the guys that are supposed to be serving it, and you didn't even take it. That's not my place. It's between them and God. So I just want you to to think about the Lord and and where are you at with the Lord. You don't have to be perfect, but your heart ought to be toward the Lord, striving toward Him, wanting what He wants for your life. Not that you don't fail Him from time to time. Not that you don't find yourself using 1 John 1, 9 constantly, because we do use it a lot, don't we? But boy, our heart ought to be toward Him. So, I don't know. I'm just saying, be careful, and may the Lord bless us tonight. This is His time. We focus on Him. We don't want anything in our life that distracts from Him. So let's give him the glory. Let's praise him tonight. Because if we don't, the rocks will. Father, we come to you. We thank you again for all that you do for us. We thank you for the simplicity of your word. And you are so worthy of our praise. May you help us, Lord, to, Father, prepare our hearts even now. That's why we have altars. That's why we have our, our altar and our heart even. We can write at our seat, do business with you right now, confessing our sin, getting things right, 
helping you to understand that our desire is to serve you. We may find ourselves struggling in areas of our life, but we're still struggling. We're fighting. We're warring because we want to please you. Or that's different than wanting to hold on to sin and not caring what you think. Help us, Lord, tonight now to praise you in our attitude and our actions, to lift you up in everything we say and do. Lord, we need you tonight. Be with your people. And Father, help us, Lord. We pray that you would just uh, help us to enjoy this time of reflection as we remember everything you've done for us, the broken body and the shed blood. Thank you for it. In Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stand to our feet, every head bowed, every eye closed tonight, would you? secret.
All right. Let's take our Bibles and turn over to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 14, verses 35 and 36. Matthew 14, verses 35 and 36, and we're still in our series here, Secrets of Successful Living, Being Concerned for Others, and so let's go ahead and continue with that. We're going to read here in chapter 14, verses 35 and 36, and when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out into all that country round about and brought unto him all that were diseased and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment, and as many as touched were made perfectly whole. That's a pretty good passage, isn't it? That's good stuff. Well, we've been dealing with that for quite a while now, and from our passage we, we learned three things about the people of that particular day, which are still true today, mind you, about people. We learned that they were diseased, we said. They were diseased. It says all that were diseased, and it identifies them that way. You know, we described them in our study so far, we described them as lepers. And we described them as lepers having no hope and without God in the world. And then we also recognized them as being incomplete without Christ and operating at less than full capacity. And we noted that mankind is tripartite. Even as God is tripartite, we are created in His image, we too body, soul, spirit. However, we recognized and understood that mankind in the fallen state that he is, is only operating on two cylinders, so to speak. There's a part that's missing, if you will. There's a part that's dead to God, and that's the spirit compartment. And so we noted that, and uh, we said that basically that body and soul are operating and functioning like normal, but the spirit is dead to God in the unregenerate man. And so they're incomplete. That's part of the disease, if you will. And again, we see that they literally had a physical disease and we are making the application to mankind today and we realize that we too are diseased without Christ Jesus. Not only that, we said that they were at a distance. It says here in the passage that they sent out into all the country round about. They were at a distance. They were far away from God. And uh, that's kind of how we find ourselves today in America and around the world. We are far away from God without Jesus Christ. And, you know, there's no doubt that we are just ever growing further and further away from God in America, it seems to me. But I'll tell you what, we're in a mess and the only solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we noted that they were diseased, they were at a distance, and they're disabled. They're disabled. Um, <clears throat> It says, and he brought unto him all that were diseased. Uh, again, uh, we, we, I, I think I wrote the wrong portion down for that part. But nonetheless, you get the idea they were disabled. And they, they, they were disabled in that they had to be brought to Christ. And that's the portion I was supposed to be sharing there out of that passage. But, but uh, they were brought to him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. I mean, they, they, they were in a bad spot. They couldn't even get to him. They were disabled. And uh, so that's a real problem. And we noted that and we kind of took some time to address that issue. And we said that they were without strength. They just couldn't get there on their own. And uh, so nonetheless, you know, I guess, you know what I think? I'm worried today uh, in America about the church. 
And can I tell you, you know, more than ever, I think, you know, that uh, Revelation chapter 3 passage stands out in my mind. Uh, over there, we see the Laodicean church, you know. And, and they say, we have need of nothing. And the Bible goes on, God goes on to tell them, oh, but, by the way, let me tell you what state you're really in. Can I tell you today that across this country in churches, including ours, there are people that are blinded to their condition. I'm not talking about salvation even. I'm talking now just about their spiritual condition. I was reading a, a book here recently for our Book of the Month Club, and uh, it's an older book, an older author. And one of the concerns that he had in his day was that so many Christians view themselves spiritual that aren't living spiritual. Isn't that amazing? How's that possible? A hundred years ago, a preacher noted that in the church and, and around those that he was dealing with. And, and his whole point was he was trying to deal with being filled with the Spirit and how so many people are striving to be filled, but they're not. And yet they're, they don't realize how much of what they do is truly in the flesh. Boy, I tell you what, that's alarming, isn't it? You talk about operating without strength. We talk about the loss that way, but what about you and I today? Functioning and operating without the power of God in our life. I think the evidence of that is that we're not scriptural, we're not biblical in some areas of our life. And we have to be very aware of that. So even, even those that we looked at, we dealt with back then, we can see parallels to us today. And we took the time to do that. And um, we ended up by saying, listen, the truth is, is that you and I that do know Christ, we have a responsibility, an obligation to reach those that are in that condition spiritually, that are without Jesus Christ that are diseased and are distanced and are disabled. And uh, we said, hey, do you got some compassion? Do you care about people? Are you really concerned about souls? Are you burdened about their eternal destination or destiny? And so we want to begin this portion of our study by asking a question tonight. And here's the question. What is it that we really begin to get, when is it that we really begin to get concerned about the souls of others? When does that happen? When do we really begin to get concerned about the souls of others? And we're going to look at the passage a little bit and get an idea. And maybe we can learn something from that today. Because honestly, let's face it, uh, we need to be concerned about the souls of others. We really do. Because I, I promise you this, if we're not, there's probably not a whole lot of people too concerned. It really isn't. So let's go ahead and have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you. We let, just pray that you'd bless us tonight. Speak to our hearts. Thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the liberty that we have in him. Thank you for the freedom that's ours. Thank you that we can fellowship one with another, that, Lord, we can be unified, that, Father, life can be good in our minds and in our eyes, Lord, that the world may be falling down around us. But thank you that we have hope because we have you. And, Lord, you're so good to us. And, Lord, thank you that things that would seem and appear so bad, people look at us and would have to say, wow, you know, we just can't even fathom. We can't even understand how you have peace in your life in the midst of this. But Lord, we have peace because we have you. Thank you for that. And we thank you for your promises and we thank you for your words. Speak to our hearts tonight. May we have a burden and a love for souls that, maybe, that we've never had before. May you instill in us that desire, that love. In Christ's name we pray, amen. <clears throat> Verse 35 again, we go back to that. And we notice that it says, it was when the men of that place had knowledge of him. Okay, they, it was when they had, they had uh, knowledge of him that they sent out into all the country. That's when we see them sending out, once they had knowledge. You know, it's easy to see what happened here then. These men found the Lord for themselves, 
and they immediately became concerned that others might find him too. That's what's going on here. They found him, and then they got concerned about others finding him too. You know, and that's how it always happens. Do you know that knowing and going go together? Knowing and going go together. Now, I, I don't know, I've got this little simple little poster here, and, and, and it just, I thought it might be a little easier to remember if we saw it instead of just heard it. But knowing and going go together. And they always go together. That's just a reality. That is life. That's how it really works. That's biblical. And when we really know him, we're going to go for him. Amen. See, you know, and when we really know him, now I'm not talking about being saved here. That's not what I'm talking about. Listen, you can be saved and be as cold as ice. Okay, but when you know him, you'll go for him. And, and the measure in which we know him determines the measure in which we go. That's, that's the truth. It's the way it is. So there's a correlation between knowing and going. It always works that way. Someone says, well, I love Jesus and I love people and I love the Lord. And man, I'm so close to Jesus Christ. Yeah, what, well, how's your family doing? Is your wife saved? Your husband saved? Your children saved? Your grandchildren saved? How about your niece, your nephew? What about some relatives and family members? Well, I don't know about that. I don't know. When's the last time you talked to him about that? Well, I, I just, you know, I don't want to upset him. I don't want to get him angry. I don't want to, I don't want to lose him. Yeah, well, you're already losing them because they're lost already and are going to burn in hell. I mean, do we ever understand that? We're so worried about offending somebody, presenting the gospel to them, while in the long run, they're just going to die and go to hell if we don't. Who do you want to lose them now? Or you want to lose them for eternity. See, that's the real issue, isn't it? I mean, since at what point do we finally say, you know what, I'm not as concerned about them being offended in this life as I am about them being tossed into hell and looking and saying, why didn't you say something? They're already gone. They're already lost. You say, well, they might get upset and they might not want to fellowship with me anymore. Uh, I think we can be a little bit wise, more wise than that in most cases. There may be a few isolated situations like that, but I'm going to tell you something. Most family members that know you care will at least hear you. They may not listen to the gospel, but they won't excommunicate you out of their life for one opportunity, two opportunities, three opportunities. And by the way, if you love them enough, I think maybe you might be willing to lose them now in order to gain them for eternity. Because see, when you get to know Jesus Christ and I get to know him the way we ought to, I'll tell you what, going won't be the problem anymore. We'll have a love for people because we'll have a love for him. By the way, I don't know about you, but Jesus Christ did a real good job of reaching out. And you know what? We get his mindset, we'll find ourselves being a little bit more aggressive in this thing. Knowing and going, they go together. That's all there is to it. You can't, you can't separate the two. It's a reality. It's the way it works. We have some clear examples of this in Scripture as well. Turn to Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. Philippians 3, 10. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, we're going to be reading about the Apostle Paul. And, and let's be honest, we would all agree that the Apostle Paul was passionate about his relationship with Jesus Christ. He was pretty passionate about it. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. And he says right off the bat that I may know him. I got to believe that the reason why the Apostle Paul was so adamant about going, the reason why he would stand the test of time, the reason why he wouldn't give up in the face of persecution, I got to believe it's because he knew the Lord the way he did. I mean that. I, I'm confident of that. 
He didn't want to disappoint Jesus Christ. He didn't want to let others down. He knew and understood that there was a heaven and there was a hell. He realized that if somebody was going to reach them, it was probably going to have to be him because there was a lot of other people who weren't willing to maybe share the way he did. All I know is this knowing and going go together, and we have the Apostle Paul. There's no doubt that his relationship with Christ was, I mean, as far as we know, as good as it's gotten on earth by a human being to the point where it affected his every move and every desire. I don't think it's any wonder that he went and did great things for God. It's because he knew him so well. How well do you know God? How well do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? How well do I really know him? You know, I got thinking about this the other day. You know, it's funny, and I'm just going to throw it out there, okay? And you you do with it whatever you want. But I thought it was kind of funny the other day. I'm reading this book, and and you know what the chapters that, that drew me? the fastest to, to it, the one that really I wanted to go to and kind of like skip the rest to go to them was on the filling of the Spirit. And I got thinking, if I'm such an expert on the filling of the Spirit, I wouldn't be reading all this. Why do I need to read this if I already had it figured out? But shouldn't all we as Christians have it figured out? Isn't that a promise he gives us? Isn't that a command that he gives us? Be not drunk with wine where it is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. I'm just saying, how's come I'm so intrigued with the, the writings of people that write on the filling of the Spirit? If, I, if I'm where I'm supposed to be, why do I continually seek that? Wouldn't I already be able to go, well, let me tell you how to get it done. And I, and I, and I have at times given some messages and I thought, hey, I've got some handle on this. But how's come I'm still finding myself being drawn to that if I've got it all figured out? I guess I don't. I guess I never will do 100%. But let me ask you something. Does it bother you that you don't? Or is it okay just to continue to go on in the strength of our flesh? To continue to work in our own effort? To continue to do the, 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 the heavy lifting, so to speak, in the Christian life on our own and in our own strength? Isn't it amazing over in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you've got these Corinthians and the Apostle Paul writes to them and he, and, and he, he writes them, they have all the gifts. They get all the gifts of the Spirit. They're, I mean, they're doing all these different things. There's all these escapades they're doing, and things are going so well, and they're seeing miracles, and they're doing all this stuff. Wait a second. How's come he then says to them, ye are carnal, yet ye are carnal, yet ye are carnal, yet ye are carnal? You know what we find? Successes are not evidence of spirituality. It, and, and the appearance of spirituality isn't always evidence of spirituality. Isn't that amazing? And we have a world right now that's dying and going to hell. It's a reality. It is the way it is. It's not getting better in the world we live in. It's getting worse all the time. Our children are growing up in a world that is going to be totally different than the world we grew up in. Even if you are 20 years of age today, the world that your children are going to grow up in is totally different than the one you did. When I was, when I was 20, those that grew up after me, 20 and over, that, it was different, but it wasn't the kind of difference that this difference is. Now, I'm not saying that I wouldn't have kids, and I'm not saying I wouldn't want kids. I would. I heard somebody the other day say, I wouldn't have kids. I was making a visit on somebody, and one of the gentlemen said, I wouldn't have kids. I told him I would never bring someone in the world in this situation. I wouldn't do that, and I thought, that's because you're not thinking. If you were 20 years old again, you'd want kids too, just like you wanted kids back then. Now, listen, I, I think you ought to want children. You ought to raise godly seed because the world needs some light in the darkness. 
I didn't say it'd be easy on them. I didn't say it'd be easy on you. It's never been easy to raise children for the Lord. It's never been easy to live for Jesus Christ. There's always challenges. But man, do it. But the fact is, you better get to know him. If you want the balance in your life you need, you got to know him. And in this case, the Apostle Paul was passionate about his relationship with Christ, and it affected his ministry every day of his life. You, whether you are a full-time Christian servant or not, you have a ministry for Jesus Christ. And you have a responsibility and an obligation to fulfill that ministry. It is not enough to simply say, well, I'm not in the ministry. Yes, you are in the ministry. It's time that we realize you don't have to be on paid staff to get something done. You don't have to be the top dog running around to be required and expected to pray and beg God and seek the Lord and to pray and fast and to get things done for God. God expects all of us to have a ministry with people. And this is the ministry that is most important to God because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. After meeting Jesus, Andrew's first, he first finds his own brother, Simon Peter. Once again, Andrew finds the Lord. He meets Jesus Christ. Once he meets Christ, then all of a sudden he's compelled and he's motivated and he's moved to reach his own brother. Why? Because he met the master. He has insight into the master. He now has a relationship with the master and he wants his brother to have that same relationship. The Bible says he first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. Think about that for a minute. How many rejected the Messiah? How many said that he wasn't who he claimed to be? How many of the religious leaders stood up and said, He's blasphemous? But yet this man meets Jesus Christ and recognizes him for who he is. Emmanuel, God with us, Messiah. He now has a relationship and he recognizes who that relationship is with. And he says to himself, I've got to find my brother. I've got to bring him to Jesus. Do you ever wonder about someone's salvation? I mean, I'm just, just throwing it out there. Have you ever wondered about someone's salvation who claims they're saved but doesn't even know if their husband or their children are saved? You ever wonder about that person's salvation? And you start to wonder, do you really even know Jesus? And you don't care, you, you haven't even talked to your husband or your, I've known people who have, have prayed and begged God to reach their husbands that were lost and God did miraculous things and he can and he will, but not always the way in our time frame. But my friend, what, how sad would it be if you didn't have that heart? I have met people who weren't even concerned about their husband or their children's salvation. Maybe they were in church before, and now they're out of church. And you say to them, what about your kids? And they go, well, what in the world is that? I think there's something about this relationship, knowing and going. See, I think once you stop, you cease to know him, you get too far away from God, you really don't care about that one no more. I really do. I think there's a real correlation between knowing and going. Philip, after meeting Jesus, is compelled to find Nathaniel. Nathaniel would respond negatively at first. I mean, that's just how he was. But at least he met the master. And then everything changed once he met him, you know. It's funny in John chapter 1. Turn over to John chapter 1, verse 43. Man, Nathaniel's an interesting character. He's a lot like us. If you're critical and cynical, then guess what? Just call yourself Nathaniel. Watch what happens here. 
It says, The day following Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Man, I mean to tell you, he, he, he can't help it either. He has met the master and it has motivated him. It has moved him to reach his, his brother as well here. And so Nathanael then in verse 49, he answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the son of God, thou art the king of Israel. Now that's wonderful because that's a great response. But that wasn't what he said originally. Can anything good? Let's read back there. Let's take a look at that real quick. I just think it's great because ultimately this man's whole attitude changes toward Jesus Christ because Jesus makes a statement to him. Okay, John chapter 1, I'm I'm going over there. I had this passage written out for me so I wouldn't mess it up. And so here I am messing it up because now I want to turn to it. But anyway, here we are. Chapter 1, verses 43 and 45, we already read that. But notice what it says. It goes on to say, And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, you talk about negative Ned, right? This guy, man, I'll tell you what. He's got a brother who's met Jesus. He's fired up. He's excited. He says, man, Nathaniel, you've got to meet the master. I mean, we met him. We know who he is. He's here on earth already, a fulfillment of the scriptures. And his first response is, can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so he goes on, and Jesus, uh, it says, Philip saith unto him, come and see. Just see for yourself. You want to know why? Because knowing him is going to make the difference. Because you get to know him, it'll change your life. And boy, look what happens here. He goes on, uh, and Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and saith unto him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. <laughs> Nathanael saith unto him, whence knowest thou me? <laughs> Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and said unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. I love this. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. I like that. Now again, I'm just saying, I mean, I'm just saying, it changed his life. It changed his life. Who changed a person did, Jesus. He got to knowing him, and you know what Nathaniel started doing? He started going. Everybody that really got to know him started going for him. That's really something. So we, we recognize that. We see that as a reality. So what is it that we really begin, you know, when is it that we really begin to get concerned about the souls of others? When we get close to him. When we draw nigh to Christ. When we get his heartbeat. That's when we'll find ourselves having a heartbeat for others. How's your heartbeat? If you say, well, I'm struggling a little bit in that area. Maybe you need to work on knowing him more. Listen, the world's not going to change because we call ourselves Christians. The world's not going to change because we set up a church on the corner. There's all kinds of churches in America. But for some reason, America's getting worse and worse. So it's obviously not churches that are going to change lives. It's obviously a person, Jesus Christ. But if he's not making a difference in our life to the point where it affects our schedules daily, if his presence in our life isn't upsetting the apple cart at times, then why would we expect him to 
be able to change others' lives. Knowing and going go together, and it's so important that we understand that, that we keep that together. I don't know. How good has God been to you? I mean, really, when you think about it, how good has God been to you? You know, what has he done in your life, what he's done in the life of your family, your loved ones, your friends? Boy, I tell you what, we, we fail to remember those things sometimes, don't we? We really do. And if we'll get to know him more, I mean, how long, what, when's the last time you did a study on the names of God? I mean, you did it. I'm not talking about it in Sunday school. Some of you just got in your Bible and thought, you know what, I'm just going to, I got me one of those Thompson Chain reference Bibles, or I got a, a, Tom, a, a Thompson Chain, or I've got a, a or a, 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 what's that old, Schofield reference Bible or something. I'm just going to run this word all the way through. I'm going to run this name all the way through the Bible. I just want to see where it's at and how it's used in context. I just want to take the time to figure that out and get to know who God is a little bit based on his names. I just want to, I'm just saying, do we know him really? I mean, we know kind of what he does for us. That's not hard, is it? Well, God, he saved my soul. God, he, the Lord Jesus Christ died on Calvary for me. Oh, man, he shed his blood for me. Yeah, I know all that, but do you know him? I didn't say, do you know about him? You know what he did in your life. I'm saying, do you know him? There's a difference. And, and honestly, I, I think that one of the reasons why we struggle, and again, I, I think we, you know, we've got a, we got a pretty good group that comes out on Saturdays. Not all of everybody goes out soul winning, which we want to try to help encourage people to do that more. Uh, you know, because we can all make visits. That's easy. We know that. But boy, reaching out for souls, that's a whole other issue, isn't it? That takes us to a different level. That's a different level of knowing him. <laughs> I mean, you know, my confidence level gets a little shook sometimes when we actually knock on a door or we talk to somebody. Hey, you know what the goal is, though? Is that it's not just on Saturday or Tuesdays or on Thursdays or wherever we decide to schedule a, 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 a visible soul winning time. It's when we're out and about that we're really just willing to drop a track. We're willing to mention the, the Christ to somebody, talk to somebody about Jesus. That's really the real test, isn't it? When you know him, the like we ought to know him. I don't know. You ever see some of these teenagers running around? Or you see a young couple that's just getting, get, get ready to get married. They, they always like around each other. They're always thinking about each other. They're always talking to each other. They're always in you know, communication with one another. There's just such this, this little, they're just so excited about the other. You know? And if they're not, they probably shouldn't be together. I mean, there ought to be something there, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I can do without her. You probably shouldn't marry her. You know what I'm saying? That's probably not a good idea at this point, okay? Just thought I'd throw that out there. But, 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 you know, they're not. They're enamored with each other. They, they, everywhere they go, they think about that person at that point, don't they? Men, they go to work and they're like, man, I just can't wait to get off work so I can give her a call or talk to her or go see her. Or, right? So that's the way it is. You know, you, know what, you know what? Every once in a while I evaluate my life and I realize sometimes I'm not even thinking about him. He's not even on my mind. Can I just say this? If he's not on my mind, is it possible he's not on yours too? I'm, I'm just saying, listen, I'm being transparent. I get caught up in life too. I find myself busy about things and doing certain things. And I find myself going, wait a second. I never even talked to him about that. Well, it's going to be hard to be a good witness for Jesus because, uh, and, and really be willing to put myself out there all the time the way I ought to if I don't really know him that well. 
I mean, if he's not on my mind all the time, do I really even know him the way I ought to? And you know what my answer is for me? No, I don't. I, I like the Apostle Paul. I, I need to say that I may know him. I've got to start working at that more and more. I've got to be on that constantly. Because, boy, I'll tell you what, if I'm going to reach the world with the gospel, which that's what I've been commissioned to do, and by the way, so have you. We've all been commissioned. Through the local church, yes, but all of us are required to reach the world. And you know why I go to Community Baptist Temple, why I've started the church? Because I have a responsibility to reach the world, and you know how you're supposed to do it through a local church, so I'm part of that local church. And I'm going to reach the world with the gospel the best I can. And you know what? That's what you're doing. You don't have to be on the foreign field to reach the world, but you can be involved in reaching the world right in your local church and in your community. That's what we're doing. But you know what? If we don't know him, it's going to be hard to be going for him. To know and go. The measure in which we know him determines the measure in which we go. And that's what we learn and that's what we see even with these men. They met the master and when they met him, they went out looking for others. May God help us to do the same. Father, we come to you. We ask, Lord, for your leadership, and we just thank you for your goodness in our life. We are needy people. Lord, not one of us in the room, not one of us has it all figured out. But, Lord, you do. May we, may we have a longing, a desire, a, just a passion to know you more, to get closer to you, not just to know more about what you do for us or can do for us, who you are, to just know you for who you are and, and just to let you be all in all in our life. We need you. We love you. We just pray for your leadership. Help us, Lord, to be just more passionate about souls, more compassionate toward souls. And may we have a desire to reach the world like others have reached us. We love you. We thank you. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand to our feet. Every head bowed, every eye closed.